Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we got a show lined up for you that uh, hopefully will awaken some of you. Somebody just asked on uh, our YouTube channel, he joined the YouTube channel, and he uh, asked about, uh, he thanked me for what I said in the end of the particular one, which is the Body of Christ, uh, Part 3 of uh, the Corpus of the Body of Christ. And uh, he thought that I was making uh, the good news, the gospel, too complicated. Tries to make it very simple. He says, uh, these are the family that hear the Heavenly Father and do what he says. And uh, I can't disagree with that statement that uh, he is, you know, part of my brother who... Not just says, Lord, Lord, but he who doeth the will of the Father. So that's what Christ said, and that's part of his doctrines. The guy worded it a little bit different, but what he said is absolutely true. But then my question is, why are more people uh, claiming to be Christians not doing what he said? Why are so many of these people who claim to be Christians not doing what he said? And I just gave as one example... Uh, most people claiming to be Christians uh, today go to men who exercise authority for their daily bread. They do not go to church for their daily bread. They do not go to church for their welfare, which is what the welfare was in the days of Rome, was your daily bread, which was handed out by the government. The free bread and circuses of Rome. He was uh, Caesar Augustus. We give examples in the free books that we have online. Uh, the, the Caesar gave out free bread, not only in Rome, but in Judea and Jerusalem. And if the day of giving away bread fell on a Jewish holiday, he made it, uh, so that they would give that free bread away on another day where the Jews could come and get their free bread on that day. And anybody just about could get free bread. They had uh, ways of telling who was who in different places and at different times in history. Like they had a tessera, which was a little clay tablet. And a, and then there was a titleist, uh, which a tessera sort of acted as a titleist. It tells your status. And if you were of a status that could access that free bread, you could access that free bread. If you weren't of the status, you couldn't get it. It was generally available to everybody, but if you were well-to-do... You know, you wouldn't want to show up. Uh, we, I've actually seen where people were buying all kinds of food on food stamps and loading it into a, what probably today would be $7,500,000 motorhome. And, uh, you're wondering who, who is that? And then you hear about these welfare people who are collecting welfare checks on 700 false identities and, you know, so there's a lot of problems with it. But generally speaking, your modern welfare is your daily bread. And Social Security is part of that welfare. Social Security is not your money that you're getting back. That money was paid in for somebody else. We show you how that works. And, in fact, the, mon uh, the, the modern uh, system of Social Security 
is identical in essence to the Corbin of the Pharisees. And we show that. Now, that some people say, well, you're trying to make it so complicated. No, I'm just telling you what it is. If you want to walk around in a daze and not know the whole truth, then, well, maybe you can do that. But that's not the job that I've been given. My job is to give you the whole truth. The problem is most people can't handle the truth. Now, this Paul guy who wrote on the, you know, made a comment on our YouTube channel. I don't know him. You know, I I could see a little picture of him here, but I don't know him. And I don't know what he means by... Certainly, he's right if you just take those words, but we show you that modern Christians are not doing what Christ said, which, of course, was prophesied, that many would come in my name, but I don't know them, and evidently, they don't know him. They think they do, but they're wrong, which brings me to the topic for today, which is uh the fact that... uh you know, I'm supposed to, according to Matthew 28:19, I'm supposed to go, therefore, and teach all nations. That would be all Gentiles. Uh, probably ethnos is the Greek word there. And baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, when I say baptize, a lot of people are going to think, oh, take them down to the river and dip them in water. But John the Baptist said, I only baptize you with water. There's one who comes after me who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and and more. But that's, I think, since this is Jesus' command, that's what we're supposed to be doing is baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. Well, immersing people in the Holy Spirit is immersing, and the Father and the Son is immersing them in the identity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the character of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the uh, DNA of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And taking the people to that place is going to include telling them the truth. And the the question is, can you handle the truth? Uh, and I I thought more than once when I was considering and praying about what we were going to talk about today, I, I, I keep going back to that quote of Mark Twain, it's not so much what you don't know that gets you into trouble, but what you absolutely know is true that just ain't so. And of course, Mark Twain wasn't the first to say that. Uh, he he said it, but he the, it's, there's been reference to the fact that he actually got that from a plumber who uh, said it, and he thought it was clever, and so he said it himself. So, And of course, the plumber only had a limited audience, and Mark Twain got the big audience. So, I'll tell you things you need to go out and tell them to other people. But the thing, the information that I give you is just information. Just because you tell somebody else what you have discovered to be true doesn't mean that you're baptizing anybody in the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's a process that you're going to have to depend upon the Holy Spirit to do. And what I'm pointing out is that a lot of people think they are, you know, serving Christ, doing great things in Christ, believing in Christ, accepting Christ. But how do you know whether they are or not? Well, are they doing the will of the Father? Or are they doing another will? Well, we know the will of the Father includes 
the spirit of the Ten Commandments, you know, you're not supposed to be making covenants with the gods of other people. And you're not supposed to be um, coveting your neighbor's goods. And, of course, you're not supposed to be stealing or killing or hiring people to kill people for you, obviously. Uh, If all the people that say they're Christians were Christians, you wouldn't have millions of children being aborted. You wouldn't be bombing in country after country after country. You wouldn't be... uh, uh, you know, swearing oaths, because Jesus said, swear not, not at all. Uh, James said, above all else, stop the taking of oaths. Yet people are taking oaths all the time at a drop of hat, and they all call themselves Christians, yet it says, you mean, want to talk about some of the things that it says that are simple? Stop the taking of oaths, swear not, not by anything, because it cometh of evil. That's a pretty clear directive. How are you making that okay now? (laughs) So (laughs) the reality is you're doing lots of things. And and if you think, if you don't know what Corbin was, and, you know, we have articles up and recordings up and videos up where you can go find out what Corbin is. But we're going to get into some things to show you how, how this, how evil actually works. Uh, you know, I actually came across a quote of, uh, John Bethke, or Jean Bethke, uh, Elstian, uh, in, uh, Augustine and the Limits of Politics, uh, tried to associate Augustine, uh, with, uh, Arndt and, uh, who was another author, uh, about those times. And they said, concerning the concept of evil, uh, Augustine did not see evil as glamorously demonic, but rather as absence of good, something which paradoxically is really nothing. Ardent envisioned even the extreme evil which produced the Holocaust as merely banal. And, uh, you know, the uh, in Eichmann in Jerusalem. Anyway, uh, what what do they mean? That evil is simply the absence of good. Well, take the example. I mean, Jesus equates goodness and righteousness with light. Light is is there is no opposing force to light called darkness. Darkness is just what comes about when light is absence. Warmth is what comes of, uh, about to fill the void that we would call cold. That's that's what God is a giver of life, a, a, a filler of the void. Uh, where there was darkness, he makes light. Where there was no life, he makes life. That should be our character. We... Our society should be giving more and more life. Instead, uh, there's great elements of our society growing up today all around the world that are taking life away. We've never had more people in our recorded history as we do right now on the face of the earth. But if you go back in the last century, the first, uh, first world war, a third, uh, excuse me, 3% of the fatalities of the First World War were civilians. In the Second World War, 
it was like 69% of the fatality, 63 according to some, 69%, 65% of the fatalities in the Second World War were civilians. And that toll, that toll was immense. We got better and better at killing. And uh, we're really good at it now. Not only that, worldwide we are making people very susceptible to a a great die-off, which we see occasionally throughout the geological history of the earth that there has been die-offs. So, God is giving life, yet something is sowing death and destruction. And we see this also in the Bible where we see plagues and wars and rumors of wars and famines and death comes. That's not a product of God. Some people say, how could God allow this? How could you allow it? What are we missing that is allowing these things to come about? And if you are willing to awaken and see the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, can you avoid the holocausts of the future? As a society, I don't know if you could turn the whole ship of the world around. It seems like some people are are destined to go the wrong way. But uh, I think the more you see the whole truth, the more you're willing to see the truth, the more the Holy Spirit can enter into you and, and awaken you and give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's where you want to go. So, actually, uh, late last night, actually early this morning, I watched a video which was a discussion with Eleanor Penny and... Uh, Kehande Andrews and Jonathan Hyatt and uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who sat up on a stage and were asked a number of questions. And I could I could see th- th- these questions were, and discussion was on um, free speech in universities, who should be allowed to speak and who should not be allowed to speak. And uh, Hyatt saw... You know, he's a psychologist and saw a great many things that I was very impressed with. Although he sometimes has a weak delivery, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion, just to be critical. The other people I was somewhat unfamiliar with, I think I've uh, heard of Jonathan Sachs before. The divergence of opinions and the different way of looking at reality was phenomenal in these people. Eleanor Penny talks about uh, the concept of uh, creeping ideologies that uh, come into, uh, you know, universities and should be kept out. I mean, she was kind of a lot of double talk because they're asking her, well, so who should decide who should keep out certain people and and not be given, you know, unplatform them, not give them a platform. And she goes into a long rambling thing about everybody But then, in the course of this, everybody, you're supposed to give a greater voice to the minorities. And the minorities should be able to exclude these people. And, of course, that's what you see a lot of times when somebody comes on the campus that some minorities don't like or some radical groups don't like. They shout them down. They throw Molotov cocktails. They break windows. Uh, They don't want that person to speak. Uh, Jonathan uh, Sachs, his opinion is says, uh, if you are convinced you are right, uh, you never try to silence your opponent. If you believe in the truth, you believe that the truth will win. 
that will win the argument. You're not afraid to be challenged in your beliefs. And you're willing to discuss them and argue them and stand for them and uh, and share them with other people. And and I have to agree with uh, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Sachs that uh, that's that's true, and that's kind of what uh, Jonathan Haidt was saying. But these others want to exclude people. Oh no, no, we need safe spaces. We need protection. Everything is racist, and and they give statistics. They rattle off these statistics about you know if you're a person of color, you're more likely to fail, and you're more likely not to get into the university. You're more likely not to finish. Um, well, is that cause of that racism? Actually, uh, there's so much more to it. You know, like he, he makes accusations that, you know, he stopped if he's wearing jeans and he's coming into the university and he's got, I think he's got tenure there. At least he's been there for years. And he stopped because he's, uh, we're supposed to assume that he stopped because he's black and they're wondering why he's there. And this is supposedly racism. I don't know that that's actually the case. I also listened to uh, a number of other people, uh, including some black people, that have a completely different story. It says that there is no institutional racism. Of course, we can't say there is no racism because obviously there is. But, uh, well, we'll come back to their arguments. But I thought I'd give you a, a few other statistics. And then you can decide for yourself. It says more than one million children in the UK, this was a debate in the UK at the Cambridge, uh, currently have no contact with their father while they are growing up. A figure that is growing by at least 20,000 a year. And this is in the UK. That's, that's a pretty high number in the UK. UK doesn't have, I mean, UK is a tiny little country compared to the United States. The same kind of statistics we could find in the United, United States. But there's some studies recently, and it says growing up without a father can permanently alter the brain of a child. This is what the study comes to the conclusion of. Uh, father's children are more likely to grow up angry and turn to drugs. So they're, they're not only going to be addicted to drugs, they may be addicted to anger. That they will have buttons that you can push. They're more likely to get upset. Uh, if you push those buttons, Canadian scientists believe growing up in a fatherless household could have greater impact on daughters than on sons. So what are they, what's it doing to the daughters? Well, we'll get into that. They, they said growing up without a father could permanently alter the structure of the brain and produce children who are more aggressive. Show that sign of anger. Dr. Gabriel Gobi of uh, McGill University in Canada said that the main impact were seen in the prefrontal cortex. So they're, they're actually giving you, they're actually saying that there's a visible change in the brain. Now that's, that's a, you know, I haven't looked at the statistics, but at least there are some scientists, that's why I mentioned where they're from, that are saying that the mere fact that you don't have a father in the home can actually affect the the maturing of your brain and the formation of your brain and the way you think and the habits and addictions that you have for the rest of your life. So, does that put everybody whose father just dies at the same disadvantage? Well, I can guarantee you, and I can give you a story we have in the past, giving you stories of actual situations where 
kids didn't have parents or both parents were missing in their lives and they were fine and they seemed totally well adjusted until they discovered that their parents gave them away. Either their father didn't ever know about it or, uh, but they, at least their mother gave them away and they were actually adopted. And this created huge psychological shift in the mind because in truth, they couldn't handle the truth of that early rejection. And all the emotions of abandonment and, and feelings of abandonment, which are recorded in you, physically recorded in you, because, you know, we're, that's what we're doing as we grow in our life. All the events around us are being recorded in us. Now, how that plays back depends on elements that are depending on where you're getting baptized. Now, that's the short answer, but we'll give you a more detailed answer later. But let's take a look at some of these statistics to find out exactly what is going on. According to that Kehinde Andrews, that uh, blacks are failing, are having difficulties in college and universities because of racism. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, and I can give you all kinds of statistics on that, and so can... Uh, other people that uh, I was listening to last night, such as Larry Elder, he's a great one for st- statistics. And he's been hated by a lot of blacks. And and one old guy once said to him that, uh, that uh, you know, when I first started listening to you, Larry, and I can't imitate the guy, he, he says, I hated you. He says, you, but you made me think. I guess you're like castor oil. You don't taste very good, but it's you're good for people, so keep it up. <laughs> so anyway, so Larry Elder is, you know, Larry Elder, Booker T. Washington, Thomas Sowell, these are the heroes that the black kids should be growing up and being seen. Not these guys who run around yelling that everything, all our failures are due to racism. I'm not saying there isn't racism out there, but the statistics do not bear out that argument. And from both directions. And uh, Larry Elder has many of those. And I'm sure he probably has these as well. 63% of the youth suicides are from fatherless homes. Now that's... All homes are not fatherless homes. Uh, down here somewhere I've got it written. I think it's like 43% of the homes are fatherless in the United States. 43%. But 63% of the youth who commit suicide are from fatherless homes. Now, obviously, the only thing that contributes to that 63% is not the absence of the father. Because there can be other things going on. But that's a lot. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who have behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. These are remarkable slants and statistics that's 20 times 32 times more likely but let's get into this deeper when we come back to keys of the kingdom so welcome back so anyway we're giving you some pretty phenomenal statistics of what happens in father fatherless homes and what happens to the children in them and studies are saying that it actually alters their brain now is that is that irreparable or uh, a lot of times you can't repair an injury as easily as you would like, but you can compensate for it. And sometimes the compensation can be good. Sometimes the compensation can be bad. 
But so we just gave you several statistics that were just way out of line. Twenty percent, uh, not twenty percent, twenty times more likely uh, to um, show behavioral problem. Thirty-two times, you know, I want to almost say percent, but because I mean it's just phenomenal. Uh, Thirty-two times the average uh, runaway is from uh, fatherless homes. If there's a father pr- present, you're very unlikely to have a runaway in the home. But if he's not present, you're very likely to have it. That This is altering behavior in a big way. 80% of rapists uh, with anger problems come from fatherless homes. What the heck is going on here? 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. And the reality is, is in the black community, about 70 to 75% of the homes are fatherless. Because fathers abandon the homes because, and, and it isn't, it isn't because that's natural in blacks, because we can go back, you know, a hundred years before, and we'll see that the percentage was like three percent. Even uh, Larry Elder, his his father and him did not get along for a period of time, from about the time he well before he was fifteen. When he's fifteen, he stopped talking to his dad, and he didn't talk to his dad again for like ten years or something. It's a ridiculous period of time. He went off to college. He got a degree. He became a lawyer, very successful. And then he just couldn't sleep at night. Something was haunting him. It's part of those things, those grooves in your brain that that haunt you. And he had to, finally he was going to go have a showdown with his dad, have an eight-minute conversation or ten-minute conversation with his dad and settle this once and for all. And he, and he spewed out all these things that he was so angry about with his father and his father said, is that all? <laughs> you didn't talk to me for 10 years because of that? And so then he started sharing with his son some of his life that his son never knew about. And why did his son never know about it? Because he wasn't walking around wallowing in his victimhood. And and saying, well, you know, you know my first wife was taken from me by her parents who marched, forcibly marched us down and made us annul the marriage. And his, his second wife was evidently cheated on him and never had children. And his third wife was the mother of of uh, Larry Elder. And he, one time, he got so upset with things, he, he was running into actual, real racial discrimination. He also, you know, he had two jobs. He worked his way through until he got a GED because he, he didn't finish school because his father was absent. Way back, you know, when he was a boy. But he he started to leave home and he says, I couldn't do that to my son. I had to be there for my sons. Actually, he had several sons. And he was. And he went back. And he stuck it out. And anyway, long story short, you can probably look it up, Larry Elder, and he's probably told the story more than once. But, I mean, he's even written a book about the relationship with his father, which became very great. And it really helped awaken because he was able to deal with all those issues that he had uh, with his father, with his son. That's what you get. That's when you have, from generation to generation, you're either getting going, you know, going one direction where you're getting better or you're going another direction where you're getting worse. Because if he stayed away and didn't come back to his family, then it is 
81% more likely that his son would have had problems. 90% more likely his son would have had problems. Maybe never become a lawyer. But because he came back, because he, you know, even though his son hadn't yet, yet made peace with him, it altered the course of their personal history. And so these choices you make matter. Black choices matter. All choices matter. So the choices you make matter in your life. And so anyway, I'm giving all these examples, you know, where children with fathers who are involved are 40% less likely to repeat a grade in school. They're going to advance every year if their fathers are there at home and involved. Uh, children with fathers who are involved are 70% less likely to drop out of school. So the, this is a reverse of the statistics we just looked at. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to get A's in school. Uh, children with fathers who are involved are more likely to enjoy school and engage in extracurricular activities. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. So it's, and they smoke, they're more likely to smoke. Uh, youth in uh, state operated institutions, it's 70% more likely uh, to be there if you come from a fatherless home. The, the, the statistic in that, because there's, there's two ways. If you have children involved, you're, you're much less likely to be there. So it's like nine times more likely to end up institutionalized if you don't have a father at home that's involved. And uh, so these these statistics are showing that you don't just leave the home with impunity. Uh, the absence of the father alters the son. The presence of the father alters the son. It doesn't mean that you don't still have choices. It, your choices may be different. You know, like I say, 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the, the, the statistics should be. So there's definitely a massive correlation between this. And none of this has anything to do with racism. This has to do with just, you know, this is why some of your conservatives are saying, uh, you know, finish school, uh, don't get pregnant, and, uh, you know, work hard. And of course, these are things that Booker T. Washington was saying 100 years ago and more. There are certainly things that uh, Larry Elder says and, and lots of other people, Ben Shapiro and, and uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. And these, they know that you work hard and you don't, you know, get into certain types of trouble that you have a better chance at success. But the degree of success may also be dependent upon many of these choices. The question is, how many choices do you have? How many choices are you making? You know, I mean, like even suicides. 63% more likely to commit suicide if you come from a fatherless home. It's not guaranteed, but it's going to create difficulties, pressures, choices that are going to be harder to make. And I believe that if society was making other choices, we could reduce those. Fatherless homes, if if we were living the way Israel lived at the time of Moses, 
if we were living the way the early Christians lived at the time of Christ in the early church, if your father died, or even if he abandoned you, which is, there's a big difference, although a lot of times your child, they don't see that difference. They experience the pain, whether the father intended to go or whether he just was run over by a truck. But the reality is, if you were living like Christ said, like the early church was living, there would be uncles. There would be other men in your life. Other men would come in to your life in, as a part of your congregations because the early church formed congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Historically, that's absolutely clear. Jesus Christ commanded it. Uh, and that's, you know, that we sit down in these tens, hundreds, and thousands. And so, therefore, if a father were to uh, die or disappear from the scene, there would be other men figures taking up that slack. And if a woman was young enough and had young children, she should marry somebody else who will take on that responsibility and uh, take on those children. And because the amount of energy and compassion and sacrifice you put into this generation will determine the next generation. And what's been happening in America and in Europe and Australia and many other countries, now it's happening in China, is that people are not investing in their present generation. And there is a problem developing in the in the, the, the next generation. We have different names, Z generation, what have you, that they label these kids with. And the kids' brains, according to the Canadian scientists, are being altered. And of course, what did Christ come, the, the reality is this isn't the first time this has happened because we see the same socialist state rising up with the emperors because that's how they got their power. First people look more and more to the government and we know 150 years before the first emperor, we had uh, historians talking about people living at the expense of others because that socialism was creeping in in policies and in uh, practices of society. And it was altering society. That's what Polybius says, that it would alter society. It would change the way people think. It would change the nature of the people. And sure enough, it did. And so then when you got your first Caesar, he just expounded upon that direction that was already going. We see that taking place in the United States over the last 50 years, 100 years. We see it taking place in Europe. And it's altering the people. It's weakening them. Which, of course, was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. That in a time of affluence, you did not strengthen the poor. But in reality, they actually weaken the poor with their systems of socialism. Because it does weaken society. And uh, I'll give you some examples as we get into this. Another one of those statistics. 90% of adolescents repeat arsonists. Uh, live with only their mothers. They they come from fatherless homes. So what happens if you if the mother is missing but the father is there? Well, actually, that has an effect too. It's a it's actually it has better statistics if the father is there rather than the mother. But then uh, the mother that that is not I'm not casting aspersions upon the mother, but there's slightly better statistics. Why? Is that now there may be other problems that will manifest themselves in other ways that are more difficult to get statistics on, 
that if you don't have a mother in the home, if you only have a father. And none of these are guaranteed because of the fact that, you know, there are different kinds of mothers and different kinds of fathers and they can, and there are other people that can come into your life that will make a difference. But one of the things when the, the, uh, the presence of a father rather than the mother, the child will be more resilient, more able to deal with difficulties, more able to deal with the challenges of life. What we see today is this, uh, and we saw it in this this little uh, YouTube talk that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, which was entitled, you can write this down or try to remember it if you want to look it up and watch it yourself, The Battle Over Free Speech, colon, are trigger warnings, safe spaces, and no platforming, harming young minds. That was the topic. And Jonathan Hyatt, you know, argues in his book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. University students are increasingly retreating from ideas they fear may damage their mental health, presenting themselves as fragile and in need of protection from any viewpoint that might make them feel unsafe. The culture of uh, safety, as Hyatt calls it, uh, may be well-intentioned, but it is hampering the development of young people and leaving them unprepared for adult life with devastating consequences for them, for the companies that will soon hire them, and for society at large. Uh, assuming that everybody's going to get hired by a company, because the reality is you could be in business for yourself. You you know, you don't have to be hired by a company. But a lot of times people are hired even, you know, you might be hired by a contractor and then eventually become a contractor yourself or other, you know, you might work in a store and eventually buy a store. All kinds of other choices will come about. But Hyatt is saying that we're overprotecting our families. Of course, we hear about the helicopter mom and, and all these kinds of things. But is there some truth to what he says? Is is that what's happening when a child is raised by their mother and no father is present? Because men approach life much different, generally speaking, than women. You know, men, when they get together, you know, several men get together, young men get together. They will banter. They will challenge one another, you know, emotionally, physically, you know, mentally. And they will bout with one another and it's this aggression that they have that will teach them how to handle that aggression when you have to deal with peers that also have those same powers which is part of the contributing factor to children who are raised up without a father as we saw in those statistics are more aggressive and they're aggressive in a way in which they can't control that aggression and that's the key element. That's what gets them into trouble. That's what gets them into jail. That's what gets them in, into uh, destroying relationships, more likely to be divorced, etc., etc., is because they can't control their aggression, and their natural aggression, their hormonal aggression, which it can be a valuable tool, but it can also damage you and damage your relationships with other people. So we're going to eventually tie this all together with a, a spiritual walk, which is going to be absolutely essential 
in seeking the kingdom of God and your salvation in Christ. And some people might say, like we talked about at the beginning, is that I'm making things too complicated. But some of you will be thinking, you know, my dad wasn't home when I grew up. <laughs> you know, or he was present, but, and we'll get into this. What if he's present and he's a total jerk? He's a bad guy that he's actually damaging you. And I'll give you some extreme examples of that as we continue through this series, which again is part of our salvation series because you need to understand what's going on in your mind so you know which way you want to turn around your mind because that's what repentance is. It's a changing of the mind. It's looking in another direction. So if you're raised in a home without a father, what are you missing? What? How can you compensate? How can you overcome the damage that might be done to you if you're in that in that situation. If you are in a family, or maybe you're a father in a family, how do you get involved in that family? What's healthy for that family? Uh, you know, what's good to eat? You know, one of the things that Christ talked about, it's not what you eat that defiles you. And a lot of people talk about dietary laws. And I'm I'm a firm believer in the fact that what you eat makes a difference. You know, like uh, Hippocrates starts talking that let your food be your medicine. And that's what will promote health. But there are other things that you bring into your body that don't just come into your body through your mouth. They come in through your ears and through your eyes. What you see, what you hear, how you react to them. How do you know how to react to them without a father? Well, of course, who's your ultimate father? Your father in heaven. So if you remove the father, we know there's damage to the, the, the young growing up. What if you remove the idea of God from the family? Or you supplant the idea of God with a false idea of God. That's what we call ideology. Your ideology may be faulty. And it may be a form of idolatry because you've created God in your mind that isn't the real God. And so all these things can have uh, an effect on you. So when I'm talking about them, you can contemplate your own personal life and your own personal actions and reactions. You know, uh, Larry Elder got way better when he went and he finally confronted his father and he, they talked it out. They I mean, they talked for hours and hours and hours and resolved all kinds of issues. And they they both became better men because they were dealing with the problem. Now, women deal with problems, but they often deal with them in a different level, in a different way. And that's probably another topic. But the reality is that there is this dynamic of male and female created in the universe. You see it repeated over and over again throughout the planet and all the life in the planet. I mean, the other day I discovered that there are male and female green peppers. There, you know, there are some uh, green peppers you buy are male, and some green peppers you buy from the same plant are female. You know, I mean, they're the same kind of green pepper, and there's a way to tell them apart, and they make a difference. And you know, although the pepper looks pretty much the same, it's actually an easy way to tell them apart. So this dynamic of male and female is real, and it 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 is a an important un- to understand. But what really is important is to let the Holy Spirit into your being. 
Because remember what we talked about at the beginning is that evil is the absence of good. Darkness is the absence of light. So the reason you're not awakened is because something is keeping you from seeing the light. You're not letting the light in. You're not letting the truth in. Now, is the truth facts and information? No. The truth is the truth. It's it's a reality. It it's I mean it's it's almost uh it is like light. I mean, can you put light in a if I turn on a light bulb in a black box and then turn off the light bulb, is is the light still in the box? No. It actually has left the box. <laughs> so it's not, if you open up the box, you don't get to see a flash of light as it comes out again. It's not that kind of substance. It's not that kind of a reality. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lists where it will. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to glow in you, to be a lit candle in you. That means you have to see the truth about everything. And some of the hardest truth to see is the truth about yourself. Now, we could clearly see that in this debate, or at least I could clearly see, obviously they can't clearly see, is that some people think that all the problems uh, are the are the fault of racism. And it's actually not the fault of racism. I, in, a, in a remote sort of way, maybe, you know, one of the big problems in the black community is modern welfare, where suddenly a woman could get more money if the father was gone. So there was no reason... You know, to keep the father there, the state was going to become your father. And the people who handed down the money from the state were going to become the father. And you didn't need that father who impregnated you with those children. And so he's down the road. And you don't try to keep him there because you, you, what you want to do is keep that welfare check coming in. And that has destroyed the black community. And that was actually partially a plan for from the democratic uh, president of the united states which was uh, lbj he actually that was his design for creating the war on poverty is to create a loyalty in the black community to the government and specifically a democratic type government i shouldn't say democratic a social democratic type government that would pay all your bills and provide you with this free money but the greatest destroyers are freedom of those who spread amongst the people gifts, gratuities, and benefits. That's a 2,000-year-old statement. That's not news. That's old news. But it was old news at the time of the good news. And that's what the debate was all about. Are you going to go to men who exercise authority for your daily bread? Or are you going to depend upon men who exercise force to redistribute the wealth of your society? Or are you going to depend upon faith, hope, and charity? Faith is this motivation in you that makes you do what you do. Charity is the sacrificing of your life for others. Hope is willingness to wait upon others to make that choice to help you. If you don't have those characteristics in you, you don't have Christ in you. If you you can tell me what you believe, but if you don't have those characteristics in you, Christ cannot dwell in you. Your temple will be occupied by 
demons of the dark. And they will get you to accept ideas that are just ain't so, that ain't true, that aren't, aren't the reality that you need to see. You're going to accept a false religion. You, you might not even call it religion. Maybe you'd call it, uh, progressivism or socialism or democratic socialism or communism. But those are your religions. That's how you take care of the needy. That's what religion was, is how you take care of the needy of society, right? Those of you who know what the definition was 200 years ago, the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man, it's how you took care of the needy. That's what pure religion was, how you uh, took care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. And, and it was only pure if you did it unspotted from the constitutional order and system of government, which they translate the world. But modern Christians do depend upon the world for their, not for their daily bread, not charity, but men who exercise force. They're absolutely doing the opposite of Christ. And if people, you know, a lot of people, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. They don't want to have anything to do with false Christianity, fake Christians, artificial Christians who preach the fake news, fake good news. They don't want to have anything to do with that. But those of you who realize that if you don't live by faith, hope, and charity, your mind will be altered. If you do live by faith, hope, and charity, your mind will be altered too. But they'll be altered in a different way. You will have the mind of Christ. And when you have the mind of Christ, you can be born again. And that means set free. That's what that means. That's what it meant 3,000 years ago. That's what it means today. We'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, Jonathan Hyatt is talking about human beings are anti-fragile by nature. It's not good for us to be fragile by nature. If you If you were a an astronaut going up into space and you were in a zero-g gravity state for months and months on end, you would have muscle mass deteriorating, bone mass deteriorating, and you would become weakened by that fact that you don't have to struggle to get up and stand against gravity. Uh, It actually weakens you to be in such a... So they have to do exercises to stay in shape. They have to actually work at staying in shape. Jesus says in um, Luke 13, 24, Strive to enter at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able to. So that word strive, it actually appears a number of times in the Bible. uh, At least seven times. In that particular form, it actually, uh, you know, it, it's part of another word. But anyway, it says uh, in Second Timothy four seven, I have fought a good fight. That's the word strived, the good striving, you could say, and have finished my course. I have kept the faith. So there is an effort required on your side. You don't earn the kingdom of heaven where God owes it to you. It's still going to be granted by grace, but Jesus says to strive, to persevere, and to be diligent, to show thyself approved. 
all these things are talking about exerting a certain amount of effort. And in that, you should know that the Father will run out and meet you and give you the rest of the strength you need to make. You cannot make it on your own. You have to have the Father come out and meet you in order to bring you back into the fold. So Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world, and if my kingdom were of this world, and of course we know he's talking to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate was about to sit down in the court of judgment, which was the cosmos, that's the way the word was used for 700 years before, and for hundreds of years afterwards, it meant the constitutional order or system of government, and the government of Rome was going to sit to judge Jesus Christ, and G- and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world that you're trying to sit in judgment of. I'm not one of the people, you ain't, you ain't got no jurisdiction. And he washed his hands of the matter, which is evidence that he realized that he had no jurisdiction over Jesus. And he did not convict Jesus. He let the Pharisees, which were not all the Jews, people say, oh, well, the Jews, well, wait a minute. All the Christians, early Christians, were Jews. Uh, you know, I actually heard Ben Shapiro talking the other day. I'm, I'm trying to put together some videos, and I and somebody had presented some of them to me to look at, and there's questions asked in there. And one of the questions was from Ben Shapiro, and hopefully we'll eventually do that video. But uh, he saw, he thought that Jews did not want to follow Jesus because of his particular political viewpoints. Uh, were contrary to Judaism. Well, it was contrary to the, to, to some degree, he's right. You know, Jesus was very, very political. Not political in the sense that, that a lot of people think of politics today. He wasn't telling everybody to go out and vote for this emperor or that emperor, you know, or this commander in chief or that commander in chief. He was saying repent, think a different way, but it, what, they eventually happened to the Christians that came into conflict with government because Christianity was private religion. It wasn't dependent upon the public religion of Rome. And it required that the people strive to care for their neighbor as much as they care for themselves. And they took care of all the social welfare of Christians and did not eat the free bread of Rome. They, This is what made them separate. They had, I am a king of a kingdom, Jesus says. For this cause I came into the world, but my kingdom doesn't operate by force. Same as John the Baptist, he didn't operate by force. He operated by charity. If you're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded, contributing daily so that you will take care of all the social welfare, not only within your congregation, but all the other congregations and ranks of ten and one hundred, then your brain is going to be altered. Your mind is going to be altered. Your temple will be cleaned out because it's going to require giving and forgiving in order to do that. You're going to have to have patience with other people who don't have your exact doctrine. But again, the doctrine of the church is not the doctrine of men. It's the doctrine of Christ. He didn't say it. It ain't your shouldn't be the doctrine of the church. Maybe your personal doctrine. You know, maybe you want to keep the food laws. Uh, Peter evidently didn't have to keep the food laws. Uh, Paul didn't have to keep the food laws. 
But you get to do it if you want. What you do have to keep is the Ten Commandments, and you cannot keep the Ten Commandments unless Christ is in you. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And the Spirit of Christ cannot dwell in you unless you repent and allow yourself to have your mind changed. In 1 Timothy 6.12, it says, Fight, that's the same word we see as strive, the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. Because see, that's how you lay hold of eternal life, is you fight the good fight of faith. You start living by faith. Whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. A lot of people say, you know, like I have said, I accepted Lord Jesus Christ in my heart as my personal Savior. But your actions don't bear out what your mouth is saying. Your actions are a part of your confession and profession. That's what you're putting into motion. And if you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, hundreds and thousands and, and taking care of one another, then what profession are you making? You know, the, the word profession there is homo, uh, leago. Homo lo geo. That, that would actually be closer to the pronunciation. Uh, but uh, what does that word mean? Well, confess, profess, promise, give thanks, confession is made, acknowledge. These are all the ways it's in tra- uh, translated. To say the same thing as another. To agree with an assent. In other words, if you say, you know, if your father says do this, and you say yes, Great. But if you don't go do it, not so great. If the Father says do this and you say no, not so great. But if you go and do it anyway, then that's great. So that's how you make the kingdom of heaven great again. (laughs) Is that you actually have to do the will. Because what you do is part of your profession of faith. So, anyway, the the critics of uh, Hyatt's uh, theory that human beings are anti-fragile, they need to be challenged. They don't need to be protected nearly as much as people would like to think. Too much protection actually weakens them. They need to hear other ideas. They need to hear them and and be able to discuss them and be able to, to put up facts and information that verifies the ideas that you have are true. Because there's a lot of people out there defending ideas that just ain't so. And and since they run out of facts real quick, they try to shout down their opponents. They try to drive out their opponents. They try to 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 shut off the access of their opponents. So that they can't I can't I don't want to hear it. I've actually had people tell me that. He says, I know what you're saying is true, but I don't want to hear it. They they don't want to hear it. And some people don't want to hear it so much they can't even hear it. I mean, the, the the words don't make sense to them. Because their minds have been altered before I got there. And they don't want them altered back to what they should be. You know, they they cannot synthesize the information. That's why they hate facts. Because facts are contradictory to the ideology that they want to accept. 
So why am I bringing this up about so many other people? Of course, I'm not talking about you, right? What aren't you accepting? So like I say, the, the critics of uh, Hyatt are, argue infuriatingly. They're infuriated by his uh, misinterpretation of their initiative designed to help students, supposedly help the students, to protect the students. This very feminine thing, the woman protects the child because the child is a child. It, you know, you don't want to drop it in the cave because it's a rock floor. You're going to hurt it. So you, you, you cushion it, you protect it, you nurture it. You don't want it starving. You, you want it fed. You want it nourished. And so that's, that's what a woman does. But the man wants to get that child ready, even whether man or woman wants to get that child ready and hardened. So that they can go out in the world and run with the wildebeest and survive. Because that's the only way you get to the next generation. Is that you have to strengthen them. Get them to deal with the difficulties. Learn how to strive. So there's a combination there. And of course these are overlapping roles. Uh, men need to know how to nurture. And women need to know how to say, you know, toughen up. You know, quit complaining. You know, get responsible. And so, and if there's a man present to back her up, that becomes easier for her. Some women can do it. They're very versatile and they can do it too. And their child turns out pretty good anyway. But if you're missing certain elements, and of course a woman who didn't have a father in the home, she's going to find it more difficult to play the role of the father too. Because she didn't have one. So what we, we're doing is crippling generation of, you know, the kingdom of heaven is from generation to generation. The kingdom of hell is from generation to generation. You, you have to strive to stay together. So the, the fact that people get all upset with uh, these arguments is a sign that something is missing. They, they, they have that anger. Remember back to statistics, 85% more likely to be angry or whatever it was. And have anger issues. That's what you're seeing among these left who blow their top and are screaming and yelling and, and throwing Molotov cocktails and hitting old men and hitting women, uh, because they don't want somebody to speak. Well, if the guy's an idiot, you should be able to argue against him. And it wouldn't it make you stronger if you could? You know, you go out there and say, you know, what he said doesn't make any sense. The facts don't bear it out. You know, that was Dave Rubin was on the left. You know, he's one of the young Turks and he shifted over. And one of the reasons he shifted over is because of people like Larry Elder and Thomas Sowell just hammered him with facts that, that he was willing to see and that he woke up. Many of the, some of the best, you know, I hate to use words like conservative and liberal and left and right and all that stuff because I'm you fall into the identity politics game. Everybody should be judged as as the individual that they are. And they may have overcome they may see this but not that. You know, I actually heard Dave Rubin talking that he's always been kind of pro life. Now he's he's not pro 9-month abortions, 
but he still accepts, you know, maybe early trimester abortions. I'm not sure where he stands. You have to ask him. Uh, but he's against the death penalty. But abortion is the death penalty for a child who committed the crime of not being wanted. That's what abortion is. It's a death penalty for a child who committed the crime of not being wanted. That's altering the minds of women. The fact that women are so willing to accept, you know, right to choose while taking away the right of the child to choose to live. That they their right to choose is choosing to take away the right of a child to ever have a choice. He's going to take away its life. And without life there is no choice. But see, this is what your social justice warriors are doing. They want equality by treating some people differently. You know, by taking they're only going to take away from the rich, you know, their their Robin Hood syndrome is that, you know, I'm going to rob from the rich and give to the poor. But it requires that you rob the rich to do that. You have to become a thief to do that. Now, of course, in the movies and the books of Robin Hood and the shows of Robin Hood, you know, the sheriff is just totally mean and cruel and what have you. That isn't always the case with the rich. Some rich are rich because they're very competent. And efficient and hardworking and striving and sacrificing. And they take their wealth and they share it with others. And that's, you see, in the kingdom of God, there is redistribution of wealth. And you have a, a, an extreme power to make that decision of redistribution of wealth. But it rests in the hearts and minds of every individual who produces wealth. They get to decide how to redistribute it. They produce it. What's what's more just than that? So it's the same thing on the college campuses when somebody wants to come in and speak or somebody somebody on the college invites somebody to come into the college to speak. They pay the fees. They get the access to the auditorium. And they advertise their talk. And you get to choose whether you want to go listen to them or not. You don't want to go listen to them. Don't go listen to them. But why are you shouting and screaming so that nobody else can listen? Aren't you taking away the rights of others to hear what this guy has to say? If you think it's okay to take the rights of others away to speak and to listen, because that's you're doing both. You're not just taking away his right to speak. You're taking away other people's right to listen. Maybe they'll listen and say, you know, I think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And I see now why he doesn't know what he's talking about, because I heard him talk about it. And I got up and I asked him questions and said, well, wait a minute, that's not so. What you're saying isn't true. But see, the people who are up there yelling and screaming, they're already damaged goods. But they can heal. But they have to want to allow. If you want to be free, you have to let others be free. These are ideas that people like Booker T. Washington understood. Ideas that Larry Elder understands. Thomas Sowell understands. Jordan Peterson understand. But what don't they understand? If if we can look at the delusions of the world and say, oh, look how deluded they are. 
then what what do we know about our own delusions? You know, uh, on the left we can clearly see that people. You know, I'm, I'm saying left rather than liberal because the extreme left is, you know, shutting down speech, shutting down platforms, uh, warring against people, you know, hitting them with sticks and throwing things at them. And they're full of anger. They've got a problem. Okay? Over on the left, or on the right, they got problems too. So I don't know where you stand. You may stand in the left or the right or somewhere in the middle. But I'll guess you got problems. So what's your problem? And uh, so it, it'll go back, you know, like Freud and Jung and all these things. It probably goes back to your family life because this generation is a product of the last generation. So what the last generation was doing has an effect on this generation. And understanding your past may help you understand your present. If you understand your present, you can act in your present according to virtue and your future will take care of itself. So anyway, I I came across another story uh, of somebody who had their father at home. Their father was there all the time and that was not a good thing. And this is an extreme case. It's Jean Wiley and she was considered a feral child and she was discovered about when she was 13 years old. And her father and her mother had been there all the time. Now, her father had problems. He was born in a brothel. His mother ran the brothel. And they did not have a good relationship, to say the least. I mean, it's kind of out of the realm of psycho. I mean, he was emotionally devastated when his mother was killed in an automobile accident. And, of course, he took this out, this anger and all this resentment pent up inside him. Because he had these anger issues. There was no father in his, uh, you know, in his upbringing. So, I mean, he, he was damaged goods from the beginning. He married a girl a lot younger than himself. And uh, she actually was physically damaged. She had, you know, received an injury that eventually caused her to become blind. But uh, he did not, you know, their first couple of children died. He didn't really know how to have a relationship with a child. He tried to have a relationship with his son, but he just destroyed his son's life. But he was there. He was involved, but he was destructive because he didn't deal with these past issues in his own life. He could not deal with them. They were destroying him and destroying everybody around him. And this, I mean, he actually literally locked his daughter up, Jenny, up in in a room, force-fed her occasionally she she was like 56 pounds at 13 she couldn't walk she was incontinent she couldn't talk nobody ever conversed with her and uh it it it, she never really totally recovered there was some kind of recovery but in the society nobody really took her in there was a battle for custody her brother you know had been forced to beat her when he was a child who was older than her by his father uh, I mean, the story, I mean, you can look her up, Jean, Jeannie Wiley, and it's an abominable story, but it's the extreme. And you can clearly see how devastating her, the treatment was on her. And uh, it, she never really recovered, and society did not do what was necessary to help her recover. She was abandoned pretty much by society, about... 
Because righteousness is not as common today as it really should be. People who are awake are not, I mean, of course, everybody out there thinks that they are awake and they see things and they are, but that, what they don't know is not their only problem. It's what they think they know that just ain't so. And so she was never really helped out. And that was the extreme case where she, the damage was absolutely visible and clear and could be pointed to. But there's a lot of little more subtle damage. And of course, you know, when they, they were found out, the, the mother had gone in to get welfare, uh, because she was blind, legally blind by that time. And people began to say, well, who's this girl? Cause she had to take her with her for some reason or other. Well, they ended up, they were arrested and they were, the day they were supposed to come to trial or the day before, I can't remember, the father shot himself. And, uh, the, the child was taken away from the mother, but then given back to the mother. And the son, uh, son eventually tried to help her, but he had his own problems and, uh, because he didn't know how to be a family. But then the father didn't know how to be a family because, you know, I mean, you weren't raised in a brothel, probably. I don't know. Some of you might have been. So that was probably not a good environment, to say the least. So the reality is, is that this uh, damage is passed from generation to generation. In the extreme cases, it's easy to see, and often the generation dies out. But in the not-so-extreme cases, the subtle the subtle damage may go somewhat undetected because you have no comparison. You have no control group. So anyway, when I look out in the world and I see people having difficulty with their family, the reality is is that if you take the father out, you take the mother out, you're going to damage the child. What if you take the child out of the family? Well, obviously, if you take the child out of the family, I mean, this girl was locked in a room all the time. She had no real family contact except in an abusive sort of way. But what if you take the child out of the family and put them into public school? Yeah, that's right. You just just put them into public school for, what, eight hours a day, seven hours a day? They're not in the family. They're somewhere else. And then when they come home, they may have homework that they have to deal with that connects them back to... So even at home, they're doing what they're told by their surrogate parents, which is the school. And people say, well, where would we be without our public education? Well, we would all be home taught and private schools. And we might be better educated because we know that home taught children are better educated. And today, uh, that would be so easy. So the question is, is though, what damage are you doing? When you turn your child over to public education, which is socialism, by the way, you've turned them over. What happens if you take your parents who are old and maybe need assisted living and you put them in an assisted living place away from the family? You've removed an element of the natural structure of the family because father, mother, and child are not the only members of the family. There's the grandfathers and the grandmothers and the uncles and the cousins. They're all part of that family. Institution of God. If you remove those elements of the family, you may not get the statistics that you see where 70%, 80%, 90% are having problems. 
but it can have an influence because you remove the grandparents, because you remove the cousins, because you remove... So family is key. That is the building block of the kingdom. But that family needs to interact with other families in order to be a society, a nation of people. So how do you do that without infringing upon the rights of the individual family? Because God created the family. That's that's God's corporation. Like I've said before, corporation, by definition, is two or more people gathered together as if they were one person. What? How does Jesus describe a man and woman as husband and wife? No more twain, but one. That's the corporation of God, is the family. And and there's lots of members to that family. It's not just husband and wife. It's grandfather and grandmother and sons and daughters and cousins, etc. So that's that's the unit. But how does that unit, unit become a nation without infringing upon the corpus of that of that that body, that body we call family. We'll talk about that when we come back to the Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what is the solution to a lot of these problems that we talked about? Well, obviously, fathers need to teach their sons. It says that in the Bible. And husbands and wives need to stay together. And it needs to be kind of the job of the community and the role of the community to make sure that everything is done that's possible to strengthen that family and not undermine that family. We've seen how the the black community was undermined by the fact that people actually went to the poor and said, we can get you more money if the husband's not here. I mean, they actually, uh, like drug dealers, they got people addicted to social welfare through socialism, through a socialist program. And it was destructive and damaging to the black community. We can see that. Now, that's spreading over to the white community, too. But it was actually, and there are words right out of the mouth of LBJ that instituted this war on poverty, that this was his design. To addict the black community to the Democratic Party so that they could continue to be elected. The parties have not shifted uh, uh, that much. But the reality is, if you go over to the Republican side of the party, they're still not all seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness either. (laughs) So, what are they missing? What are they not seeing? What are they think they see that just ain't so? So anyway, I came across another guy, Niall uh, Ferguson, who actually is an English guy, and uh, and he uh, says that the universities have been taken over by the leftists, and uh, he says, I mean, all the way, the some universities, ninety percent of all the professors are left, extremely left. I mean, even many of the people on the right are actually a little bit left to center, but they call it right. But they're extremely left to the point of being communists and socialists, etc. And that's uh, that's just a reality. Uh, most of your professors are d- Democrats, most of them. And how did this come about? And, you know, he talked uh, a number of times, he's written some books on the subject of how this came about. And it's through sloth and apathy of the people who were 
you know, I don't, I, again, I don't like the left and right. I mean, because to some degree, I might be considered a classical liberal, but and to other degree, I might be considered a conservative. Uh, but the reality is, it's, it's like, uh, you know, there is valid points to the liberal philosophy, and there are valid points to the conservative philosophy, and there are bad points in both, depending on how you apply them and interpret them. The reality is, is that government is not your salvation. The Bible is about government, and it has a great deal to say about bad governments, and they come in all shapes and sizes and forms, but it also has a great deal to say about how to govern yourselves. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of individuals. The the men who were appointed the kingdom, the apostles, who were the called out, which you would translate into church, but doesn't mean church like we think of church today, but that called out of uh, of Christ was appointed a kingdom, but they were commanded not to exercise authority one over the other. And almost every government throughout, and I say almost, but I think we can almost say every government throughout the world today, it is composed of men who exercise authority one over the other. Now, they might be elected, they might be appointed, but they exercise authority one over the other. And the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt, which we talk about in the book Covenants of the Gods. And it's worse with you today than it was back then you've become entangled again in the elements of the world which is the constitutional order and systems of government and you have become a surety for debt you've cursed your children with that debt the debt is skyrocketing and you see that in the news you just don't piece the puzzle together so what what's your salvation from this where you've become this merchandise surety for debt cursed your children with that debt and pass that debt on from generation to generation. Do you get to rise up and have a revolution? No. You get to have a revolution of the mind. I mean, the revolution doesn't do away with the debt. You know, even after the American Revolution, whatever money was owed to England, we still had to pay. Didn't get rid of the debt. And the American Revolution, we weren't really the ones who were revolting. It was the king revolting because we had already strived and done what was necessary to become republics. Even before the American Revolution, uh, the uh, Lord High Protector of England, Cromwell, sent troops here to America to defend the American Republic. What the heck? We were already a republic? Yes, our charters had done it for us. That's what it said. They, they weren't, they weren't uh, revolting because of taxation without representation. That's not what it says in the Declaration of Independence. It was taxation without consent. Because many uh, of the people in America were landed. They were free men. That's what landed Americans means. They're free men. You, you, you were no longer simply subjects. Except in, in a very minute, limited sort of way. But anyway, a lot of people won't understand that. You just have to start reading the books, Higher Liberty and stuff. They're all free online. But if you don't, if you don't learn these things, if you don't know that Christ commanded you to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, then you may not understand what Neil Ferguson is talking about. He says the left has taken over the universities and therefore education and therefore the entire generation and the next generation to come.
left were looking for power. Power. That's what they wanted. So when we created offices of power in the universities, they sought those offices and they became the ones who hired the next professors. And eventually there were no conservative professors left. There were no conservatives that were actually looking at history and studying history. They were all studying these other subjects. And he, he talks about it. He, he lived it. He's, he's worked at university after university after university. He's married to the, uh, Ayan, uh, Hershey Ali, who, uh, was, uh, a girl from Ethiopia who escaped, uh, abusive relationships in, uh, her Muslim country and eventually you know, immigrated, I guess, to Holland and then now to the United States. And she's quite an individual. She's got quite a story. But anyway, they, they, they you know, I don't agree with everything uh, Niall says, but uh, he's right about the fact that they were able to take control of the universities until the, the vast majority of all the universities have this certain mindset that is compatible with them. They did this through networks. Uh, they captured the control of academic uh, institutions so that no one will be teaching anything other than what they want taught. They made a hero of uh, historians like Howard Zinn, who's really uh, not very good historian. He, he puts a slant on everything, but it is just gobbled up. Because these people know how to feed vanity. Feed these people that are coming, these kids that are coming into the universities already weakened by their broken families, the broken society. You see, when you strive in a society of tens, hundreds of thousands, working daily to sacrifice not just for yourself but for others, it alters your brain. The same as if you live in a society that is filled with selfishness and socialism, because socialism is by nature selfish, your brain is altered by that as well. One of the things he said, man with his unrivaled neural networks was born to network. And I thought that was a a good, you know, I've had people actually tell me, you guys all talk about the living network. You know, there is no networks in the Bible. It's never even mentioned in the Bible. It's described in the Bible, not only by Jethro and Moses and even Abraham, but described by Jesus Christ himself, who commanded that all his apostles who were appointed the kingdom make the people sit down in companies of ten, in ranks of a hundred and ranks of fifty to the tune of five thousand in that one particular case. It's mentioned several times in the Bible. People don't even know it's there. They don't even see it. They read the Bible from cover to cover and you mention this to them and they don't even know it's there. That they they think, oh no, it can't be. No, I've never heard of that. Then no, that was Jethro. These are Bible scholars who don't know that Christ has had to do that. And until they did that, they weren't to get any loaves and fishes. They had to do that first. 5,000, not 5,000 people, 5,000 families. Because it was, there were 5,000 men and their families there. Had to organize themselves in this 
network before there would be any loaves and fishes. Well, you're going to need the miracles of God. And if you don't do what Christ said, so you tell me that, you know, like the guy I quoted from YouTube, who's telling me that, why do I have to make it so complicated? It's, you know, what what are they telling the Bible? Why will you remain simple? (laughs) What are they talking about? What, what, how are you being simple? And, you know, you sluggard. Sluggard in what? You mean lazy in what? Slothful in what? And gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because if you do that in the name of Christ, in the spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of sacrifice, that's what the spirit of Christ is. If you do that, it will change your mind. It will change your thinking. It will clean out your temple because you're going to have to do some a lot of forgiving in order to do this. Because we see people come together in these network congregations, but then they become impatient with somebody. And oh, well, you know, that that guy thinks this and that guy thinks that, so I'm leaving. Or I don't want to have this guy here. So they're doing the same thing the kids are doing in the college. They're deplatforming people. Now, we don't really don't want to put anybody up on a pedestal. We don't want to put anybody up in a podium. That's That's not really, you know... Christ may have stood up on a rock or something, but he didn't necessarily stand up on a podium. Uh, the, the reality is he was down there where the rubber meets the road. He's down there washing feet. The spirit that we have to use to come together has to be striving, persevering, tolerant, forgiving, giving. And you have to sit down in those tens, hundreds, and thousands. Well, you know, it's not as exciting as, you know, a big screen TV and a big harp playing or uh, you know organ playing and the music playing that gives you all those good feelings that you're addicted to but you need to become addicted to the spirit of Christ Christ didn't come for the music we don't gather in the church for the music I'm not against singing I'm not against music but you gather in the name of Christ to do what Christ was doing to lay down his life you must do it to lay down your life your pride your vanity for others this this is the road to salvation it's the road to opening your mind and allowing that holy spirit in so you can see what you don't see because like you know we talked about you know if you just remove the father as a key element of the family devastating devastating you know 32 times greater chance of this and 20 times greater chance of that and amongst your kids more likely to be addicted more likely to be in jail more likely to commit suicide by a huge margin well just remove the mother from the family just remove love from the family remove the grandparents from the family remove responsibility from the family we we have a lot of chores out here. All the kids have chores. Uh, our kids all have chores. Our grandkids have chores that they have to take care of the chicken, take care of the sheep. They come over first thing and well, you know, what can I do? Kind of attitude. And they're they're all pretty good workers. And all my kids are pretty good workers. They're very successful out in society. What if we took away those responsibilities? Well, they didn't have to do it. They I mean a lot of times. 
it, it is a temptation for a mother to just do it herself than to go after her kids who are supposed to be doing something. Not good. You have to you have to let them pedal the bike themselves. You got to let them do the work themselves. And that's that's very important because you're poisoning your children. You're altering their mind. If you don't encourage them and even sometimes require them to take on responsibilities, they aren't going to get stronger unless you let them carry their weight. And that that that's just part of the deal. And if you if you didn't have parents that helped you do that, then you may not know how to do that. You know, uh, you know the the Wiley girl. She did not, Jeannie. She did not know how to walk. She didn't know how to talk. She didn't know how to interact with people in any way whatsoever. She just been kept this isolated child strapped to a chair often for hours and hours at a time, locked in a room with no windows. And it it destroyed her. I think she could have got better. I mean, Helen Keller was locked in similar isolation, except for the fact that, you know, her parents tried to... But it took somebody to come along and with tough love to snap her out of what she was becoming this wild animal. And then she needed this communication. And she finally began to communicate. So that's If you study feral children, that's one of the things that people, some people like Norm Chomsky talks about language being natural. Only if there's somebody else. <laughs> if you got somebody to talk to. I mean, there were there were two boys. I think they they might have been twins, or just close in, in age, and uh, they were isolated, extremely isolated, locked in, you know, chained to their bed, kind of things down in L.A. I think, and uh, they grew up there, and they developed their own language. When they finally got them into a hospital and started feeding them better and started taking care of them and everything and interacting with them, they would talk between each other. In a, what sounded like a total gibberish, but it was their own language. They had invented their own language because they interacted with one another. I actually know people out here that grew up isolated on a desert ranch where they didn't have a lot of interaction. Eventually they went to school, but still, you know, 40, 50 years later when the, those two brothers met, when they talked to each other, you know, uh, my own son who was often in the pickup with them, uh, when he first began to work, he worked for the local rancher. And he said they would talk with each other and you could almost not understand them. I mean, they were speaking English, but the way in which they spoke to each other, the words were not pronounced quite the same. They had their kind of their own way of talking to each other. And they understood each other fine. But it had to do with that relationship. So now I'm talking with you. And you could be talking with me, and you could be talking with one another. You need that interaction from family to family, from individual to individual, without infringing upon the rights of the individual, or certainly not, you know, infringing upon the rights of the family. Today, we see bill after bill after bill, and we've talked about it in the last few shows. They want to take away your right 
to decide the medical treatment of your children. They want to force vaccinate. And they're perfectly okay with that. The vast majority of people in some of these committees think that's perfect. They don't even say, like, well, what's wrong with that? They take away take away people's right to defend themselves. Take away their right to guns. Take away their right to home educate. I mean, it's illegal in some countries. You go to jail if you try to teach your kids at home. And down in California, they want to treat home education as child abuse. They, if you don't get your children vaccinated, they equate that with drunk driving. There is no sense to what they're thinking. They think there's sense to what they're thinking. They think what they're saying makes perfect sense. They can't see that it doesn't make sense. It ain't so, but they think it is so, so that's all they care about. But the big question is, what do you think is so? That just ain't so. And it ain't so that God thinks it's okay that you covet your neighbor's goods to the agencies of governments exercising force. He gave you a government that does not exercise force, is forbidden to exercise force over you. I mean, the Israelites didn't destroy Egypt. Egypt destroyed itself because it came against an agreement with God to let those people go. It violated the laws of God. There are things going on in the world today that is going to allow you to have your exodus. But you're not ready for exodus. You haven't learned to sit down in the tens, hundreds, of thousands. You haven't learned to be a people living by faith, hope, and charity. You have not opened up your minds to the wholeness of Christ. There are people that are starting to do this. They may be in political life. They may be in public life. They may be in private life. They may be in lots of different ways in the world. And they're starting to wake up. There's a spirit starting to move upon the waters of humanity. We are the seas that are tossed to and fro. If we want to be attached to the rock of faith that is Christ... We need to do what Christ said. And what he said was to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start taking care of one another as as if you were taking care of yourself. You have to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. If you don't do that, you are not doing what Christ said. You cannot love your neighbor from a pew. You have to put that love into action. There will be no loaves and fishes until you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. That's what Christ commanded. So that's why everybody should go to the network. Everybody hearing this. Contact people in your local area. Uh, you know, whether you're in Texas or, you know, we, we don't have lots of congregations. Sure, someday we might have tens of thousands of congregations. Uh, you know, maybe 144,000 congregations out there. We might. And, and actually, I say we have. I mean, we will be networked with because we don't have them. We don't want to have you. We want you to have Christ in you. If you want to have Christ in you, you have to eat of his bread. If you're going to eat of his, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. 
What does that mean? It doesn't mean becoming a cannibal. You're already a cannibal. <laughs> You're taking a bite out of one another. There was an analogy in the Bible. You take a bite out of one another through your systems of socialism. We don't want you. To, we want you to eat the free bread of Christ, not the free bread of Rome, because the free bread of Rome ain't free. It's those gifts, gratuities, and benefits that take away your liberties. The greatest destroyers of liberties are those who give gifts, spread amongst the people, gifts, gratuities, and benefits. That's the greatest destroyer. And that's been going on now for more than a generation. So, what what is that all about? What, what is really happening in your mind and in your heart? Has it altered you already? Do you want to be altered back again? Because for... 150 years, the masses have continued with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of rule of force and violence. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. It works through faith, hope, and charity, providing a daily ministration, daily bread for the people through that faith, hope, and charity, not through force and violence like everybody else is doing in the world. The people, having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence. And now, uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. That's what's happening in the colleges. That's what's happening in the schools. That's what's happening in the world time to repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See you on the network. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.